Good morning. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to Colossians chapter 1. Our text today will be Colossians 1, verses 24 to 29. And uh, as you turn there, I want to ask you about ministry. What do you think about when you think about ministry? Do you think about yourself or do you think about full-time vocational ministry? For example, like pastoral ministry. Here's the thing. A ministry is the reality of every believer's life. We are all ministers. We are ministers of the gospel. We're ministers of the gifts that God has given us. And we are to minister to one another to build up the body of Christ. We are all ministers. So whether you're a pastor or a missionary or a mom of one, two, three, or more kids, depending on how reformed you are, you have a ministry. But the question is, what is the focus of your ministry? Uh, What drives your ministry? How do you know that you're doing the right things in your ministry? And how do you know that you're doing things with the right motives? What is the focus of your ministry? Well, the Apostle Paul believes that true Christian ministry is centered on a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul's ministry was motivated by the glory of Christ, It was sustained by the power of Christ, and it was for the sake of the gospel of Christ. Paul's ministry was about Christ. And so in our passage today, Paul gives us a model for Christ-centered ministry. And in doing so, he shows us what every Christian ministry should look like. Not just for pastors, but for every believer who seeks to serve the Lord. Reading from Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Please pray with me. Our God and our Heavenly Father, would you sanctify us by the truth? Your word is truth. Father, would you open our eyes today to behold wonderful things in your word? God, I pray that this sermon would be helpful and encouraging and that it would present Christ in all of his glory. And I also pray that it would have a simplicity to it so that we might see the supremacy of Christ in the ministry of this church, and in our lives. Lord, I pray that this time would not just be theological reflection, but it would move us to Christ's exalting service out of a love for Jesus. Jesus Christ, the one who died for us so that he might bring us to God. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So I want to remind you that Paul writes this letter to confront false teaching in Colossae. Uh, The false teaching was a mix of several first century ideas. 
Now, uh, the dangers of these ideas was not that they were a threat to replace Christ. The danger was that they were being presented alongside of Christ, as if Jesus wasn't enough. You see, for the Colossians, the question was this. Is Jesus sufficient for living the Christian life? That was the question. Well, Paul answers this by reminding them of the supremacy of Christ. And he does this because it's his supremacy that assures them of his sufficiency. Now, in our passage, Paul takes this even further. You see, since Christ is supreme, well, then he has to have first place in our ministry. He has to be the center of our ministry. And so Paul will show us what a Christ-centered ministry looks like. In verses 24 to 29, we get four aspects of a Christ-centered ministry. So first we see the suffering entail, and then the stewardship received, and then the mystery revealed, and then lastly, the Savior proclaimed. So the suffering entailed, the stewardship received, the mystery revealed, and the Savior proclaimed. Four aspects of a Christ-centered ministry. Point number one, the suffering entailed. Uh, The suffering entailed in Christ-centered ministry. The Apostle Paul's ministry was marked by suffering. It was marked by joyful suffering for the sake of others. Look at verse 24. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So this is what Paul is saying. He's telling the Colossians, I am happy to suffer for you. Now, when Paul talks about suffering, uh, he's talking about getting beat up and being thrown in prison. See, Paul's entire ministry was marked by suffering in the flesh. But what's amazing is that he rejoices in suffering, right? Uh, Paul rejoices in his affliction. Now, why would he say such a thing? Uh, Who wakes up in the morning saying, suffering makes me happy? Nobody says that because nobody likes to suffer. But I think you would be willing to suffer for someone you love. And Paul loved Jesus. And so he was happy to suffer for his name. In Acts chapter 5, after being beaten at the Sanhedrin, the disciples rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. And so Paul was no different. Right? Paul rejoices in suffering because he loved Jesus and he loved the church. But how did Paul suffer for the Colossians? It says here that his suffering was for their sake. So how did they benefit from his suffering? Well, the answer is in the second half of verse 24. He says, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. Now, this phrase filling up is sort of like filling up a cup, like filling up a cup that is not yet full. So in other words, it literally means to complete. And so what he's saying here is that his suffering, Paul's suffering, completes Christ's suffering. Now that sounds crazy. Uh, What could possibly be incomplete about Jesus' suffering? What does he mean? Well, I'll tell you what he doesn't mean. Paul is not saying the atonement was insufficient, right? On the cross, Jesus fully satisfied the wrath of God. Nothing was lacking in the atonement. What does he mean? Well, let's turn to Philippians 2, verse 30. So flip in your Bibles like two pages to Philippians chapter 2, verse 30, where Paul says something similar. And as you turn there, 
uh, let me give you some context. There is a man <clears throat> in Philippi named Epaphroditus. Now, the Philippians really loved Paul. They collected a love offering for Paul. And so they wanted to serve him by giving him a gift. And so what they did was they asked Epaphroditus to deliver that gift to Paul. But while he was delivering the gift, Epaphroditus almost died. Look at Philippians 2 verse 30. For he, that's Epaphroditus, nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now focus on the second half of that verse. He completes what was lacking in your service to me. This is almost identical to our verse in Colossians. And so if you could figure out what was lacking in Philippians, you can also figure out what was lacking in Colossians. You see, something was lacking in the Philippian gift, and it wasn't money. Right? Paul is not like a prosperity preacher. He's not complaining about money. The only thing that was lacking in the gift was the delivery of the gift. That's what Epaphroditus risked his life to do, to deliver the gift. And so, likewise, in Colossians, the gospel is the gift. Christ's afflictions are the gift. Now, of course, the gospel is sufficient to save. The only thing that was lacking was the delivery of the gospel. So Paul's suffering completes Christ's suffering in that it delivers the gospel to those who have never heard it. It delivers it to people like the Colossians. That's why it was for their sake. And it delivers it to people like you and me. It was for the sake of the body. That is the church. Well, that was a long explanation of half of a verse. But what can we learn from this? Well, from Paul's example, we can see that suffering is entailed in Christ-centered ministry. In other words, suffering is necessary to take the gospel to the world. John Piper says that God intends for the afflictions of Christ to be presented to the world through the afflictions of his people. He says, our calling is to make the afflictions of Christ real for people by the afflictions we experience in bringing them the message of salvation. Since Christ is no longer on earth, the church is to reveal his suffering through its suffering. One missionary puts it this way. He says that Christ suffers for propitiation. We suffer for propagation. Suffering is necessary to take the gospel to the world. Now, this is not an easy message to hear, right? Because as Americans, we live relatively comfortable lives. But suffering has always been a necessary part of the Christian life. First of all, in life, you will suffer. At some point in your life, you'll suffer because you live in a fallen world. In addition, as a Christian, you'll suffer persecution if you live in obedience to Christ. In other words, to the extent that you obey Jesus, the reaction of the world will be persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, all who desire to live a godly life will suffer persecution. And friends, not only is this the sad reality of living in a fallen world, it's actually part of God's plan. It's God's plan that we make Christ's afflictions real for people when we suffer for bringing them the gospel. Friends, this means that we will not advance the gospel without suffering. We won't advance it without making sacrifices. So are you willing to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel? 
Are you willing to lose your job for the sake of the gospel? Are you willing to risk imprisonment or even your life for the sake of the gospel? You know, some of our brothers and sisters in Canada recently, some of them went to prison because they refused to compromise their gospel witness when their government tried to shut their churches down. And some of our brothers and sisters in China risk imprisonment every time they gather for worship. Every time they gather. Let us not forget what Jesus said. In this world, you will have trouble. And since the early days of the church, trouble has been a part of our lives. A suffering has always been a necessary part of the Christian life. Now, this should remind us then of Christ. Jesus, the one who truly knew about joyful suffering. You see, for Jesus, it was for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Christ joyfully chose suffering. It didn't just happen to him, he chose it to save us. And now he calls us to choose suffering. He calls us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and make sacrifices for the sake of the gospel. So friends, would you embrace suffering as a normal part of the Christian life? A Christ-centered ministry is a ministry that embraces suffering for the sake of the gospel. So that's point number one. Point number one, the suffering entailed. Point number two is the stewardship received. Uh, the stewardship received in Christ-centered ministry. Look at verse 25. Paul says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So Paul was a steward. Now, a steward is someone who, who manages someone else's property. So it was common back then to hire someone to manage your stuff, uh, to entrust someone to take care of your property. And so in this case, Paul has been entrusted with stewarding God's word. And he stewards it by making it fully known, by taking it to those who don't know it. So think of it this way. Paul is like a waiter. Now, a waiter doesn't own the food, right? He doesn't prepare the food. But all that, he does, all that he does is he delivers the food to those who need it. And so that's who Paul is. Paul is a waiter entrusted with taking the gospel to the lost. And that's who we are as well. Right? So whether you're a pastor or a missionary or a Christian in the workplace, you're just a waiter. Your job is to take the gospel as is and deliver it to the lost. Make it fully known. Now, I want you to notice something about Paul's stewardship. Uh, notice that the source of his stewardship was God. In verse 25, it says that his stewardship was from God and that it was given to him by God. In fact, in Acts 26, we get a description about Paul received this stewardship. On the road to Damascus, this is what Jesus says. He says, rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared, be I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant. Now, that word servant can also be translated minister. So you see, Paul did not make himself a minister. He did not become a minister by virtue of his education, his personality, or his gifting. Paul became a minister by divine appointment. So Jesus chose Paul. Jesus chose Paul to be a minister who stewards the gospel by making it fully known. And the point is this. The source of his stewardship is none other than Christ 
himself. Let me give you two applications from verse 25. The first is to beware of self-appointed apostles in many churches today. In fact, I think you just stay away from all modern-day apostles. Now, why should you stay away from all modern-day apostles? Because there are no modern-day apostles. You see, apostles were men who met the following requirements. Number one, you have to be a first-person eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. And number two, you have to be appointed by Christ. You have to be appointed by Jesus himself. So you see, you can't go to school to be an apostle. Did you know that there's a school in Manhattan that claims it can teach you to be an apostle? How are they going to do that? You can't be taught to be an apostle. You have to be appointed to be an apostle. And you have to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. So you see, there are no apostles today because no one today can claim to be an eyewitness of Jesus and no one today can claim to have been appointed by Jesus. The only apostles we have today are false apostles who deceive people with false teaching. So stay away from all modern-day apostles. Here's the second application. As an apostle, Paul stewards the gospel in a special way. But as a Christian, you're also responsible to steward the gospel. For example, elders. In Titus chapter 1, Paul says that elders function as God's stewards. So elders, and those of you who will one day become elders, you've been called to steward the gospel from this pulpit. So let us work hard. Let us labor to be faithful to our stewardship. Also, parents, moms and dads. You've been called to steward the gospel in your homes. So raise up your children in the teaching and admonition of the Lord. That's what you've been entrusted to do. I hate to break it to you, but it is not the job of the church to teach your children. It's your job to teach your children to make sure they know the gospel. So steward the gospel in your homes. And lastly, members, all the members of North Shore Baptist Church, you have the responsibility to steward the gospel by making sure that our church is faithful to the gospel. You see, if this church is unfaithful to the gospel, well, God holds you accountable for letting that happen. This is exactly what happens in the first chapter of Galatians, right? Paul holds the entire church accountable for turning to a different gospel. So as a member, make sure you can defend the gospel because you will be held accountable for your stewardship. So let me ask you, are you being a faithful steward? You know, Jesus once told a parable about faithful stewardship. Uh, In Matthew 25, we have the parable of the talents. And the parable of the talents is a story about a man, a master, who seeks to go on a long trip. And so what he does is before he goes on the trip, he calls three of his servants together and he gives them parts of his estate. So he makes them stewards. So to the first servant, he gives five talents. To the second servant, he gives two talents. And to the third servant, he gives one talent. By the way, a talent is a large sum of money. And so the master leaves, he goes on his trip. And then when he returns, he calls them all together to give an account of their stewardship. So to the one who had five, he now has 10. To the one who had two, he now has four. But to the one who only has one, well, he still only has one. So to those who are faithful, to the first two, the master says this, well done, good and faithful servant. Aren't those the sweetest words in the world? 
to hear from the Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But to the one who did not come back with a return, the master was angry with him. And so what he does, he casts him out. So I'll ask you again, are you being a faithful steward? If the master were to return today, would he find you faithful? And by the way, we've been given something even more precious than talents. We've been given the gospel of Jesus Christ. So are you a faithful steward of the gospel? If the master returns, would he find you faithful? This brings us to point number three. Point number three is the mystery revealed. The mystery revealed in Paul's ministry. So Paul is to steward God's word by making it fully known. And then in verse 26, he tells us what God's word is really about. Right? Because if you're going to be a steward, then you should know what you're going to steward. So he tells us what God's word is actually about. In verse 26, he says that it's about a mystery. It's a mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Now, this term mystery here is not like the Da Vinci Code, right? It's not as if the Bible contains a secret code that you have to break. But rather, the term mystery refers to something that was once concealed, but now revealed. What do I mean by that? Well, Augustine once said that in the Old Testament, the new is concealed, but in the New Testament, the old is revealed. So what was once concealed in the old is now revealed in the new. So this is what the mystery is. So in Paul's theology, this is what he means by the mystery. The mystery is God's plan of salvation in Christ. God's plan of salvation in Christ. A God's plan which was anticipated by shadows and types and prophecies in the Old Testament is now revealed in the New Testament through Christ. So in other words, the Bible is one big story. And the hero of that story is Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus. You know, there are many people who know all the stories of the Bible, but they don't know the story of the Bible. They don't see how it all fits together and points to Jesus. So uh, I was once talking to my coworker about David and Goliath. And so I asked her, uh, what is this story about? Uh, What is David and Goliath uh, really about? And so she responded by saying that it's a story about how Christians kill their giants. It's a story that motivates us to slay the giants in our lives. That is not what David and Goliath is about. David and Goliath is ultimately a story that points to Christ, the one who defeats sin and death to save his people. And by the way, I think in our circles, in reform circles, we also see the other extreme, right? Where some people spiritualize everything so that everything is Jesus, right? So you go to the Old Testament, you see a piece of wood. Well, that's the cross. You see the number three, well, that's the resurrection. Or anytime you see red, well, that's Jesus's blood. All sorts of crazy things. So let me ask you, do you know how to read your Bibles? A recent survey came out that showed that one of the reasons people don't read their Bibles is because they don't know how to read their Bibles. So do you know how to read your Bibles? And if the answer is no, well, you should admit it and you should ask us for help. And then roll up your sleeves and get ready to study your Bibles so that you can see Jesus as the hero of every story. Because that's what the Bible is about. 
The Bible is about Jesus. And then in verse 27, well, Paul will elaborate on the mystery. He says, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, what does he mean that the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory? We see God has always intended to dwell with his people. Uh, In the Garden of Eden, God's intention was to dwell with Adam and Eve. After the fall, God's presence was with his people, first in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And then one day we know that Jesus will dwell with us forever in the new heavens and the new earth. God has always intended to dwell with his people. But for now, he dwells in us. He dwells in us by being united to us. You see, the term Christ in you refers to our union with Christ. And it's because of our union with Christ that we can have hope. Because just as Jesus died and rose in glory, we too will one day rise in glory. Jesus is our hope of glory. Friends, are you afraid of death? Because the gospel speaks hope to us even as we face death. Because not even death can break union with Christ. So if you're here today and you're a Christian, well, then you are in Christ and Christ is in you. And because of that, he is your hope of glory. If you're here today, you're not a Christian, you can have this hope as well. Uh, But first you have to realize that you are a sinner. And because you are a sinner, you deserve more punishment than you can ever bear. And so what you need is more than happiness or health or prosperity. You need to be forgiven. You need to be reconciled to God. And so Christ, in his mercy, he's made a way. He accomplishes this by dying in our place as our substitute on that cross. And in rising from the dead, he defeats sin and death. So that all who trust him and repent of their sins can have eternal life and the hope of glory. If you would trust him today, you can have this same hope. Last point, point number four, the Savior proclaimed. The Savior proclaimed in Christ-centered ministry. Look in your Bibles at verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So you see, the method of Paul's ministry was the proclamation of a savior. Notice that Paul's method was not social action or political reform or anything else other than the proclamation of a savior. And so as we look at verse 28, I just want to ask three questions. Uh, Who do we proclaim? How do we proclaim? And why do we proclaim? Who do we proclaim? How do we proclaim? Why do we proclaim? First, who do we proclaim? Well, as we would expect, Paul says, him, we proclaim. If you could summarize Paul's preaching in one word, it would be him, Christ. Paul tells the Corinthians, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, at a church like this, at North Shore Baptist Church, I don't need to impress upon you the importance of preaching. You know this. 
right? Uh, you know that our lives are shaped by the preaching of God's word. And, and we understand the power of preaching to give new life to those who are dead in their sin. For example, we see this in Ezekiel's vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. So in Ezekiel 37, uh, God calls Ezekiel to speak to dead bones. And through his preaching, God gives life to dead bones. So preaching is the means by which God brings people from death to life. Preaching is important. But Paul doesn't just emphasize the importance of preaching. He emphasizes the content of preaching. You see, the false teachers had convinced the Colossians that preaching Jesus wasn't enough. Uh, It wasn't enough to save, it wasn't enough to sanctify, and it wasn't enough to give them hope, right? So you, you need Jesus. They knew that. You definitely need Jesus, but you need Jesus plus something else. This is exactly what we see in many churches today, where Jesus is preached alongside of other things, right? So you have Jesus plus prosperity, Jesus plus personal success, Jesus plus social justice. Or Jesus does not preach at all. Michael Horton, who's the author of the book Christless Christianity, asks an interesting question. Uh, he asked, what would it look like if Satan took over a city? Right? So what would it look like if Satan literally took over New York City? And so he quotes a pastor by the name of Donald Barnhouse. And Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over a city, well, the bars would be closed, pornography would be banished, the streets would be filled with pedestrians who smiled at one another, There would be no swearing, and churches would be full, but Christ would not be preached. In other words, Satan would be more than happy to see us live moral, upright lives, but what he doesn't want is Christ being preached. Friends, Christ must be preached because Jesus is what we need. We preach Christ because he's the subject of the scriptures and the personification of God's grace. In Christ, we have grace sufficient for all of our sins, and we have everything we need for life and godliness. Jesus is the one who died for us, and who was raised for us, and who is interceding for us, and who will never, ever leave us. We preach Christ because at the end of the day, Christ is all we have, and Christ is all we need. And so him we proclaim. Brothers and sisters, I think that you should earnestly plead or even demand that your preachers preach Christ. Spurgeon once said that a sermon without Christ in it is an awful thing. A sermon without Christ in it is an awful thing. Listen to what he says to preachers who don't preach Christ. He says that a sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir, then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. Because, friends, preachers who only preach Christ are worth listening to. And, brothers and sisters, here at North Shore, we've been given a great gift. Because for the past 30 years, Ed Moore has been an exemplar of Christ-centered preaching. And he set the example for the rest of us to follow. So recently, uh, we celebrated Ed's 30-year anniversary, uh, 30 years of ministry for him. This was in July. And uh, for his anniversary, we made him a book. And so the elders and Elisa came together. We, uh, we put a book together for him. Now, I understand that most of you have not seen the contents to that book. Um, we want to keep it that way because it's a mystery. No, just kidding. Um, 
So um, one thing I do want to share from that book is that we asked Brian Davis to write the foreword to that book. And I want you to hear what Brian writes about Christ-centered preaching as an encouragement to Ed. And the reason I want you to hear this is because I think it's instructive to us so that we can learn what we ought to appreciate about pastors. Right? When we appreciate pastors, what should we appreciate about them? Listen to what he says. Engaging teachers are not the heart of faithful ministry. Stop right there. So what he's saying here is this. Ed's personality is not the heart of his ministry. So like his humor, you know how he thinks he's funny, right? That's not the heart of his ministry. That's not the heart of his ministry. But rather, it's the body of one's teaching. What marked Paul's ministry was not his personal particularities, but that the spotlight of his preaching stayed on Jesus. Keeping Jesus paramount and central is the true substance of preaching and the true power in the church. Only ministers who know that and preach that are worth listening to. And Edmore, by God's grace, is worth listening to. Brothers and sisters, only those preachers who preach Christ are worth listening to. So earnestly plead or even demand that your preachers preach Christ. And I think it's appropriate to thank those who already do. So if you haven't done so already this summer, uh, give Ed a text today and thank him for 30 years. That's crazy. 30 years of Christ-centered preaching. Now, second, how do we proclaim Christ? We know we have to do it, but how do we do it? Well, Paul says that we proclaim by warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. So true preaching must both warn and teach. It should encourage and rebuke. It teaches the truth and it exposes error. It presents the blessings of salvation and the dangers of sin. You see, sometimes preachers are afraid to warn people about their sin. They teach, but they don't warn. But that is not good preaching. Pastors are not loving you if they're not warning you about sin. So uh, many years, years ago, I had a patient who had a heart attack and a stroke at the same time. And so we treated him with two life-saving medications, two medications that had to be uh, used together. And so uh, on the day of this charge, he calls me over to the bedside, and he's like, come here, come here. Which medication is most important? And I'm like, why? Why are you asking that? Because I only want to take one. I said, you, they work together. It's like, no, tell me which one is most important, and I'm only going to take that one. So I said, sir, it, it, does not, it does not work like that, okay? You have to take them. If you want to stay alive, you have to take them both. In the same way, God gives us many medicines for our sanctification. And one of these medicines are warnings. Look at some examples of such warnings in this very letter. For example, in Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, Put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And then in the very next sentence, he warns us by saying, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. You see, people need to know that the way they're living is why God's wrath is coming. Preachers must warn their congregations. And congregations, in turn, should welcome these warnings. We should receive it with joy. John MacArthur once said that hard preaching produces soft hearts. Hard preaching produces soft hearts while soft preaching produces hard hearts. Friends, do you want hard hearts? Well, then we should welcome hard preaching because true proclamation is both 
warning, and teaching. Okay, so who do we proclaim? We proclaim Christ. How do we do it? By warning and teaching. And lastly, why do we do it? Why do we proclaim? Well, Paul says in order to present everyone mature in Christ. So the goal of proclamation is not just to get decisions for Christ, but it's to make disciples of Christ who grow to maturity. See, every parent longs for their children to grow. So I remember uh, when we had uh, our, well, our son, Nathan, uh, we were first-time parents. And someone brought us one of those infant scales, those little baby scales, right? Um, I don't know who created these things, but it sort of resembles those things at supermarkets where you weigh your vegetables, <laughs> except it's got a longer, longer platform. So you could, you know, plop your baby down and measure your baby. And uh, when he first came home from the hospital, I would measure him every single day to make sure he was growing. You know, seven pounds, six ounces, seven pounds, eight ounces, seven pounds, nine ounces. I weighed him yesterday. He's 100 pounds. I think I'll, I'm going to stop. I promise I'll stop. Every parent longs to see their children grow. And so likewise, the apostle Paul longs for Christians to grow through the preaching of God's word. This should also be the goal of the local church, right? The goal of the church is not growth in their numbers, it's growth in the Christ-likeness of their members. You see, Paul would not be, he would not be impressed with the size of our church. He would not be impressed with the sizes of any of our churches in America. And neither should you. Paul is concerned that our churches grow in Christ-likeness. That we would grow to be mature in Christ. That's what the church is tasked to do. And that's the purpose of proclamation. That's why we proclaim. Well, let me close with three points of application. So we have four points in the sermon, three points of application. Application number one, embrace suffering by making deliberate sacrifices for the gospel. Embrace suffering by making deliberate sacrifices for the gospel. Friends, there are so many ways you can make deliberate sacrifices. For example, it might come in the form of turning down a promotion at work so that you can have more time to lead your family and be present at church. It might mean moving closer to the church so that you can be available to serve others. It might also mean serving in the children's ministry so that parents can hear the gospel. Thank you to all those who serve in the nursery, in preschool, and in children's church. Thank you for your faithful gospel service every Sunday to teach our children and so that their parents can hear the gospel here in this room. Please do not underestimate the gospel significance of what you're doing with the children. Now, making sacrifices might also mean serving as a deacon in order to take care of the practical needs of others. Thank you to all our deacons who make such sacrifices so that the elders can focus on prayer and preaching. Making delivered sacrifices might also mean giving more financially to the church so that we can take the gospel to others. Or it could mean moving maybe to another country for foreign missions, like Matthew Weesey and his family, who moved to Indonesia to take the gospel there. It might even mean risking your life like Jim Elliott, Jim Elliott who died at the hands of those he tried to witness to. For most of you, it might mean just staying here in New York, right? living in a city where it's expensive and crowded and frankly a little dangerous. 
But I want to remind you that there are 8 million people living here in New York City, and most of, the, most of them have yet to bow the knee to Christ. So this week, would you consider how you can make deliberate sacrifices for the sake of the gospel? Application number two, reject the prosperity gospel in all of its forms. Reject the prosperity gospel in all of its forms. I think most of you already reject the prosperity gospel. Uh, You know that the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is both dangerous and damning. You reject the lie that God always wants to heal you and to, uh, to bless you materially. But what I'm asking you to do here is to reject the softer and more subtle form of prosperity in your hearts. You see, sometimes we can reject something in theory, but we'd accept it in practice. Friends, the pursuit of worldly success, comfort, and material prosperity is not the way of Christ. Now, I'm not saying that these things are bad in and of themselves, right? Success, comfort, and prosperity could be blessings from God. But the pursuit of these things as an end is not the way of Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is not rocket science, right? The unbelieving world will simply not be impressed if we look just like the world. Obedience to Christ means sacrifice and suffering. It will always lead to some measure of sacrifice. So don't run from suffering. Don't be surprised by suffering. Be prepared for suffering when it comes. And in doing so, you will be free from the prosperity gospel in all of its forms. Application number three, be a faithful steward by giving yourselves to Christ-centered ministry. Be a faithful steward by giving yourself to Christ-centered ministry. And this would include the local church. Friends, let me ask you, who is supposed to do the work of ministry? According to the Bible, it's everyone. It's the saints who do the work of ministry. In Ephesians 4, it says that God gave us pastors, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So you see, every Christian is saved to serve. Uh, Every member in the church is to be a minister in the church. The church depends on everyone. We all play a part as we minister in the capacity that God has given us. Friends, churches that make an impact for the gospel are churches that are filled with members who give themselves to Christ-centered ministry. Members who minister for the glory of Christ, in the power of Christ, and for the sake of the gospel of Christ. Here's the thing. I think as a whole, Christians in the 21st century have become a little lazy. We've become too dependent on paid staff to do the work of ministry. Right? Our attitude is, why should I do it when, when that person is getting paid? Why should I do it when that person is getting paid? Say that to the Apostle Paul. Listen to how Paul describes his ministry at the end of our passage. Verse 29, he says, For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For this I toil. Friends, can you say that about yourselves? That you toil, you struggle, and you spend yourselves for Christ. And for those of you who already do, please be encouraged. Be encouraged because you're not laboring in your own strength. You see what he says in verse 29. If God wants to advance his gospel, he will give you divine energy divine strength for the task. We struggle with all the energy that he powerfully works within us. So if you're doing that already, let us continue to be faithful stewards. 
Let us continue to be faithful with our time, our gifts, and our resources by giving ourselves to Christ. So, brothers and sisters, reflect on your life. What are you doing with your life? Reflect on your life. Is your life a ministry unto the Lord? Have you embraced the suffering entailed? Are you faithful with the stewardship received? Are you familiar with the mystery revealed? And will you see to it that the Savior is proclaimed? Devote your life to Christ by giving yourselves to Christ-centered ministry. Let us pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, would you enlarge our view of Christ? Help us to think of the glory, the supremacy, and the sufficiency of Jesus so that we might be so satisfied in him that as a church we might love him, suffer for him, and be faithful stewards of his gospel. It's in his name we pray. Amen.